Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Attention all personnel, please clear the launching area. Fire. Fire. Oh, baby. I'll give it to you. That was really good. Yes, it does. It's dead on. Okay, keep the chatter down in this room. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I'm all set, yeah. Launched slightly late, but still reaching for the stars. You can't say that without laughing. <laughs> it's awful, laughing, isn't yeah. it? It's no, really no, awful. Just... Look, I, to be fair, I wrote that about five o'clock this morning. <laughs> yeah. but it's really poor, isn't it? Uh, anyway, it's the October 2019 edition of Space Boffins. We're in partnership with The Naked Scientists. I'm Richard Hollingham. And I'm Sue Nelson. This time we'll be touring Virgin Orbit's rocket factory in California. And I'll be heading, I'll be heading even to southwest England to look at Britain's first spaceport and we'll be paying tribute to a hero of the Soviet Union, Alexei Leonov. Our guest in the studio with us is Shahida Barrick from SSC Space UK. Now the SSC stands for Swedish Space Corporation. Yay, that's great. And before we came on air, I asked, uh, you know, we're taking level and I asked Shahida, what did you have for breakfast? And you said the most Swedish thing ever. Go on. So I had smoked salmon and two hard boiled eggs. I know it's Swedish, (laughs) but it's breakfast of champions and I love it. (laughs) Great stuff. Now, give us an idea then of what SSC actually does and also why why you're here in the UK. SSC has been in existence since the early 1970s. It started its life in Sweden, clearly, um, and presently... It has has now up to 500 people working across the world for it. There are three bits that make up SSC. We have a launch services division, which I think will correlate very well with today's topic. <laughs> yes, yeah. that's right. Almost and, think this was planned. Yeah. Yeah, almost. <laughs> Absolutely. And the other two divisions are science services, which essentially means having a global network of antennas or earth stations we like to call them and the last division engineering services comprises of up to 200 spacecraft engineers and why are we here because of the very reason that the uk space industry is absolutely booming and we believe we have all of those goodies that <laughs> we can bring to the UK and work in collaboration with industry and government. Well, we're delighted to have you here. Thank you very much. Now, you are a business development manager for SSC Space UK, yes. but your background, you've got a fabulous background <laughs> because you're an engineer, yes. aren't you? And you've worked for the European Space Agency and, and Airbus. Could you just give us a little brief highlights of some of the things that you've been an engineer for? Sure. So... I have an aeronautical engineering degree and I have that degree because I wanted to be a jet pilot with the Royal Air Force. Now I'm too small to be a pilot so I finished the degree anyway. Really? Um, Too small to be a pilot? At the time. It used to be the other other way. You used to have to be quite small to be like an astronaut or a pilot. I know but you know something I never challenged it. It's one of my life regrets I think because when I I failed the uh, medical they said oh you're too small because the measurements um, have to be very exact. The forearm measurement, the thigh measurement 
moment. I guess you have to reach the controls. Absolutely. I mean, there's no point in being in a cockpit if you can't fly that aircraft. And so I finished the degree. And as you do in the final year, you apply for jobs. Um, I accepted initially a job as an avionics engineer uh, for a company um, that was known as GEC Marconi at the time. And then having accepted that job, I saw an advert in a graduate magazine for Airbus to work in the mission and operations team. I had no idea what that meant. I applied for it, got the job. I found myself in the launch and operations team. Fabulous. And uh, within the first few months of having started, I found myself working on a satellite launch campaign. So I was sending telecommands to a big geostationary satellite. Geostationary satellites are 36,000 kilometers above the Earth's equator. It was at the time Airbus's largest telecom spacecraft. I found myself working out of Singapore, uh, then Taiwan, halfway up a ground station. So in the end, I ended up being part of eight satellite launch campaigns whilst I was at Airbus. And uh, the majority of them were military satellite launches, which I can talk about a little bit more Mm -hmm. later. But for now, here's a rocket. (laughs) That's one burn. Well, this is a recent ground test of Virgin Orbit's Launcher 1 rocket. And the rocket will be launched a bit like a missile from 35,000 feet beneath a converted 747 aircraft called Cosmic Girl, of course it is, uh, with the first test launch due in the coming months. Well, Launcher 1 will be able to carry payloads of up to 500 kilos. And uh, well, we were on holiday in California recently, so I had a chance to see Cosmic Girl at the Mojave Air and Spaceport, and also took the opportunity to visit the Virgin Orbit factory in Long Beach. It's clear from the vast scale that the company means business. Hey, welcome to the Virgin Orbit factory. Uh, my name is Kendall. I'm the communications officer here, and we're just about to take a tour and see all the hardware that's going to space really soon. So if you can see on the floor here, this is a full-scale model of, uh, of the Launch One rocket. It's just shy of 70 feet long, 57,000 pounds when fully fueled. Um, it looks like a really big rocket from here, um, but that plane is actually just so big that when it's under the, the wing, it's really just barely sticks out on either edge, which is, which is really cool to see. Um, and so you can see kind of what it looks like uh, up on that, on that wall there when it's mated. Uh, the red bit there is called a pylon, and that's pretty much just like the hook system that we use to grapple the rocket. It has some electrical connections and other things and sensors so they can keep track of the health of the rocket, but pretty much it's just three giant hooks that hold the rocket into place. And- You're right about it being larger than I expected, mm-hmm. well, both of us expected, because on the way here, we stopped and saw the 747 Cosmic Girl at Mojave, completely by chance that it was there. We just thought we'd see it. And now looking at this outline of the launcher on the floor... That must be about, what, three or four stories long? Yeah, it's about 70 feet long. Um, So it's actually still relatively small in the world of rockets. Um, When we get around to the other corner, you can see the fairing, and that will give you a sense of scale about the size of satellites that we launch, but they can range anywhere from sort of the size of a a grilled cheese sandwich to maybe like a refrigerator on the upper end. And so that's kind of like our scale there. And and in America, you have big refrigerators, don't you? Oh, we do, yes. (laughs) (laughs) So about a... 600 kg, if that makes sense, yeah. Yeah. at the max. Uh, so this is the avionics section. Um, I usually don't spend too much time here because it's not very visually interesting, but the work they do is really, really important. Um, obviously, when the rocket is released from the plane, it's completely autonomous. There's no guy on a joystick uh, sort of piloting the rocket and telling it where to go. 
Um, so these guys build the software and the hardware that pretty much function as the, uh, the rocket's central nervous system. It keeps track of um, its health, keeps track of things like temperatures and pressures with all the sensors, and also gives that data back to us during the flight. Um, and, it, and it also operates our automated flight safety system, which makes sure that we operate very safely. So how much of this is done from, from scratch? I mean, this is a whole, you're building a whole new... Yeah, well, so historically, um, a lot of rocket programs function largely as like integrators, where they all buy their engines from one place, they'll buy their structures from another place. Um, Virgin Orbit is doing a little bit, uh, doing things a little bit differently, um, partly because we've just had so much investment up front that we can sort of afford to plan for the long term, um, and also just because it, it helps us move a lot faster. You know, we want to we want to be able to maximize our agility so that our small satellite customers can also get their missions up as quickly as possible. And so we're building everything from the tanks to the engines to the valves. Pretty much everything on that rocket is built in-house. I would say maybe about 90-plus percent of the rocket is, is built right here in this factory in Long Beach, which is really awesome. Um, so we're really proud to say that we are like a 100% American-made rocket, which is sort of rare in, in, the, in the industry nowadays. Well, um, the scale of what you're doing here, you know, and just one enormous factory building a rocket from scratch. Yeah, that's right, yeah. And actually, when we moved into this building, um, it was so empty that we had basketball courts on the other side. Um, but we actually moved into this factory because we knew that we wanted to build something like 20 rockets per year, and we needed this amount of space to accommodate that. And it's filled up very, very quickly. As you can see, we kind of have tools, instruments, and, and storage going from wall to wall now. So we really sort of expanded into a real operation. Um, we're not just thinking about the first rocket. I mean, as we walk around, you'll see even more structures from rockets in various stages of production. They are a beautiful shape. Oh, yeah, they're, they're really they're awesome. Slightly mm-hmm. retro, uh, stainless steel, curvy, open funnel end. There gorgeous. is a, sort of a sense of beauty there. Yeah, yeah right. Absolutely. It's That's one of the things that I actually really appreciate about, about seeing that everything come to life here in the factory is that we can see the rocket from when it's just bits and screws and bolts and, and how we build it up into something that's magnificent and powerful, like like launcher one. I normally like to measure things in sizes of football pitches and I'm trying to work it out. I think what we're really looking at about four football pitches maybe um, something a something like bit that it's about 175,000 uh, square feet of manufacturing space so that's that's more than enough for us to build sort of 20 rockets per year which is our goal within a couple of years so ultimately you move from more the research area into a production line of rockets right that's kind of where we're at now so we've, we've spent a few years sort of designing and developing the technology now that we've proved that out you know with our integrated stage testing our, all of our flight tests over the last year now we're starting to really expand on that sort of assembly line manufacturing manufacturing process. We're, we're building three, four, five, six rockets at a time. I'm John Fuller, the Director of Advanced Concepts at Virgin Orbit. What are the advantages of this system of launching from an aircraft up into space? The primary advantage is you only have to build your launch site once. So you get to take that launch pad wherever you need, and once you have that ability, you can access several different orbits that maybe one typical ground launch site can't access by itself. Um, so whereas another launch provider off the ground might go build two, three, four launch sites to be able to access all the orbits they need to, uh, we need only an aircraft and our support assets that we take anywhere around the world. That's your 747, your aircraft. And then what else? What else do you need? So the 747, obviously, the pilots that go along with it, uh, the rocket, which goes to orbit, as well as a, a fleet of mobile ground support architecture equipment. So that's uh, trailerized assets, tanks, pressurized gases, a shop truck with um, tools in it, and our, um, our mobile clean room. So that's what services the payload itself. What would happen if it didn't release? Would you be able to land back at an airport 
with your launcher one beneath the wing again, even though it's now filled with fuel? Absolutely. Uh, the whole system was designed around that being the limiting case because otherwise, if you had to lose your rocket every time something didn't go according to plan on your, your launch day, then you would lose a lot of rockets, at least of the first couple missions. So we've designed the whole system in such a way that we can safely, uh, we'll safe the rocket, uh, come back to land, and um, perform the mission again the next day, uh, just as we would have had there been no anomaly. Now, I mean, you mentioned, you know, air launch has been done before. I mean, most famously for most of our listeners will be the X-15 space plane we're launching under a a b-52 dropping down heading out into into space but what made you think well this is the way to go to to be able to serve the sort of customers you're you're looking to serve with these small satellites the the ability to launch everywhere is really what made launcher one what it is we all recognize how building rockets and designing them is already difficult but Adding the fact that you have to build new launch sites and tie your business case to investing and maintaining all of those launch sites for every single new one you build, having that be a part of your future almost doesn't make sense when you consider the idea of being able to carry a rocket anywhere and release it anywhere using this launch pad in the sky, right? So that's, that's really the fundamental idea of why we went with Air Launch. When we saw the tour, we saw some of the fairings in different stages of construction, And it was quite clear that, theoretically, you could fit a couple of people in there. Is this something that, in the future, you might consider? I'd say the jury's still out on us launching any any humans into space. Right now, uh, Virgin Galactic has sort of the monopoly on the Virgin companies in terms of launching people. That's not to say we can't look at it one day. Um, While we, we could easily fit people volumetrically in our fairing, Uh, you need quite a bit more mass to launch to be able to keep them alive in orbit. And uh, that that mass capability probably exceeds what Launcher 1 can do right now. But it's not to say that future evolutions or other variants of vehicles that can perform uh, higher in mass could not be used for, for launching people. So we, I won't discount it, but I'll also say that's that's still far off in, in the in the future. What I'm struck by, I mean, we're sitting at the, the corner of the, the factory and it's just stretching out in front of us. We reckon it's about the size of four football fields, some, mm-hmm. something like that. Yep. Um, uh, on brand, we're sitting on uh, Virgin Aircraft uh, chairs in the, in the corner here. But stretching out in front of us, you, I mean, just a whole load of, of rocket fairings, of the nozzles for the rockets, and then the launchers themselves further. I mean, the ambition of this and the size of this and the fact that it's like an assembly line and, and that's what you're, you're looking to do is this rapid turnaround and be able to serve customers what as, as soon as they ask for a launch yes that is the plan uh, we we want to be the most responsive launch provider that there is and and i've talked a lot about air launch and being able to go anywhere around the planet to to do a launch but the, the fact of the matter is is that you can't do that unless you have the supply chain and the the production rate behind it to support it so a lot of forethought has gone into engineering this factory to produce at a rate that can rapidly support that and there's a a lot of vertical integration here there's a lot of things that uh, we do all by ourselves Um, there are very uh, few parts of the rocket that are actually done out of house and it's um, and we're always looking at ways to to further do things on our own so vertical integration is where it's at What's the potential then of this as a, as a system, as a launch system, do you think? Well, the potential is to bring the cost of, of air launch and of small satellite launch down to a point where 
we can stimulate this market of small satellites. Uh, we, we go to this small satellite conference every year in uh, Logan, Utah, and if you take the attendance rate of that particular conference as an indicator of, of what's happening in the small set industry, then, then it's, it's magical. Like We see tons and tons more people attending every year. So with that, we're, we're looking to stimulate that market on the launch side, bring the cost of launch down, and really help those providers and satellites get off the ground. John Fuller, Director of Advanced Concepts at Virgin Orbit. And before, you heard uh, Kendall Russell. And uh, more about uh, where Virgin Orbit plans to launch from in the UK uh, later in the podcast. I mean, you, you can tell we were pretty impressed by all that because I think it's easy to be cynical and sceptical about anything branded with Virgin as users of Virgin Media and Virgin Trains. But actually, it's a genuinely big, impressive operation with this Production line, 20 rockets a year. I mean, Shida, that's pretty impressive, isn't it? It's absolutely uh, phenomenal. We are seeing a renaissance in the entire space industry, not just in the UK, but across the world. And the emphasis, uh, both political, financial and technological push behind uh, creating launch capability across the world is just something we've not seen the likes of before. So absolutely. We took quite a few photos while we were there, which we will put up, but we weren't allowed, obviously, for secrecy's sake, to take photographs of the really juicy stuff. So they're mostly of the really cool area where the employees go to have something to eat and have some free sodas but (laughs) but it's got things like you know one on bandit machines and uh you know, groovy pictures and stuff. So it, it's very, very Silicon Valley, even though yeah, it's not yeah. in Silicon Valley. Yeah, <laughs> yes. it's, it's, it's absolutely. You can tell it's in, uh, it, it's in, it's in California. I mean, just wondering about how many satellites we can be launching now. Because we're in this era mm. of launching lots of small satellites. Yes. We've got um, OneWeb starting its rollout yes. of its constellation yes. next year. I mean, I think they're talking about launching thirty odd satellites at a time. Um, with this, you could launch multiple very small satellites. I mean, can can we cope with that many satellites? So we're seeing a paradigm shift in the entire space uh, industry. Even if we just go back 10 years from today, the thought behind mega constellations, um, small satellites was just so, so new. Um, we were still living in the era of launching really big satellites that were weighing two, three, four tonnes into the geostationary orbit. In the space industry, we use very specific terms. We use terms like contested. We use terms like congested. So you mean in terms of orbit? There's a lot. There's, Absolutely. You're running out of space, Absolutely. So we have thousands of objects uh, in space. Now, space um, is divided into Leo Earth orbit, medium Earth orbit, and geostationary. So with regards to your question, Richard, um, OneWeb, which is a mega constellation uh, company, will be launching hundreds of satellites into the Leo low Earth orbit. Now, there's a lot of hard work that needs to be accomplished. Um, and I'm not just... Um, talking uh, technological hard work but we have to look at the regulatory environment we have to look at the operational liability piece even before we can begin to launch any of these uh, satellites into space and once they're there we really have to develop technologies that allows these satellites to operate without crushing into one another and because the place is just so full of uh, objects so all of these big companies will be working hard to realize uh, and to um, thrash out the entire regulatory frequency coordination and the operational liability um, um, areas of work. 
Do you see Virgin Orbit as a competitor? Absolutely not. And the word uh, competition is a really dangerous uh, word. And of course, in business, in order to uh, create a business and to grow it, we have to compete. But at the same time, the other word I really like using is collaboration. And there is enough space in our market for us to be collaborating and not competing because no one company can deliver on all our space ambitions. And so for me personally, Virgin Orbit will only complement all the work that's going on within the space sector, especially in the launch sector. Cool, cool. Well, this is the Space Boffins podcast. Mm -hmm. We're in partnership with The Naked Scientists. Do find us and follow us on Facebook and Twitter and tell other people about us as well because we're a very happy community of space fans, aren't we, Shahida? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, com- no competition between us. <laughs> collaboration. Um, no, yeah, collaboration, that's yeah. the word. If you're in the UK, uh, by the way, um, do uh, come and see us and say hello at the uh, Norwich Science Festival, which is on in... I probably November. should have looked this up. Uh, no, October. Uh, end, end of, of October. October. Yeah, yeah I probably should have looked this up before I said it. Um, <laughs> In, uh, in the fine city of Norwich. Yeah. Yeah. People always laugh about that. It's the Alan Partridge film, I was in the cinema watching the Alan Partridge film, and he drives into Norwich and it says, this big sign says, Norwich, a fine city. And everyone laughed in the auditorium, thinking it was some gag in the film. No, it, the signs really say that. Norwich is a fine city. It says, welcome to Norwich, a fine city. Nothing anyway. to do with the fact that you grew up there, is it? Rich? No. Oh. I love Norwich. Big fan <laughs> of Norwich. Um, I was also going to mention, we sort of had a half-hearted attempt at a, a jingle competition didn't we uh, let's do that properly okay. shall we so the new space boffins jingle is made up of various component parts we will take it and we'll put it on uh, twitter as a separate sound file there'll be no prize <laughs> just if you can sa- tell us what's in it where those little clips come from then well i'm just glad nice. you haven't got me doing that oh it's going up so slowly you know, I, yeah, I loved that. Yeah, they, it's been in there for years. That was me watching the Orion launch. But it was true. It looked like this bloody big, huge rocket going up really, really slowly, like in suspended animation. But I did get fed up of hearing my voice say that every every month. So I'm glad that's gone. So moving on. Thanks to uh, the support for uh, Space Boffins from the UK Space Agency. Um, we're going to head to Cornwall now in the far southwest of England. And that's because, and uh, it's brilliant that we've been able to go from California to Cornwall because Virgin Orbit, that's where they're going to launch from Spaceport Cornwall, which is a consortium involving Cornwall Council, Virgin Orbit and Goonhilly Earth Station. Now, the UK Space Agency, together with Cornwall Council and the Local Enterprise Partnership, Mm -hmm. is making up to £20 million available to support horizontal launches subject to business approval of course to eventually include a dedicated hangar and fuel handling facilities that will be needed for Virgin Orbit's launcher one but at the moment though Spaceport Cornwall looks no different to Newquay Airport as I discovered when coming into land on a flyby plane I've just arrived at Newquay Airport and as I got off the plane, literally the first thing I saw in front of me was a billboard. It had a surfer on it riding the crest of a wave, which sort of activity you really associate with Cornwall. But this one said, our space. 
Satellites launched from Cornwall will help predict and track weather conditions. Cornwall's spaceport. Melissa Thorpe, Head of Engagement for Spaceport Cornwall. We were initially shortlisted at a potential site was because of our existing infrastructure we already have here. We have one of the longest runways in the UK. We have um, state-of-the-art infrastructure and radar. We have direct access to the sea, low residential build-up, making it quite a safe location. But also we have a bit of a heritage here. We ha- we're an ex-military site who still have an adjacent site um, just south of the airport. And also we were a secondary landing site for the shuttle program as well. So even back then they realised you know, the site itself could handle all different kinds of aircraft and potential spacecraft, which we can. We can operate pretty much as aircraft of any size here. And I think what's really exciting is that we'll be the first place pretty much globally that will fully integrate space launch with a civilian airport. You know, how inspirational is that going to be? You can land on your flyby flight from London Heathrow, look out your window and and see Cosmic Girl ready to launch to space. I mean, that's the beauty of what we're doing. We're full integration of all these amazing things already happening on the airport, the the military operations, the civil, you know, airline passengers. But then also we're going to be launching to space. And that's that's the story. That's what Cornwall should be so proud of is that we'll be, be a global leader in that in horizontal launch at an existing civilian site. Al Titrington, Managing Director, Cornwall Airport, Newquay. One of the, one of the advantages of, um, of the airport here is that we have a very long runway, so 2,744 metres, which means we'll be able to accommodate the, uh, the, the Cosmic Girl 747 aircraft. So our Echo Apron, which is on the south side of the airfield, has a, a rather large slab of concrete where we can park that aircraft. We could actually park two or three of the aircraft size down there, and it will give that kind of like remoteness in terms of that separating from our normal day-to-day operations. So it will just fit within because we have a, a huge huge site as you can see behind us there's a lot there's a, there's a big long runway but there's also the real estate is actually attractive and i think why we're also popular and and for this type of activity is that there's already a growing and budding space economy within cornwall you've got goon hilly down on the peninsula plus a number of other businesses which are either starting to relocate or establish or grow within cornwall on the back of actually the uh, the spaceport activity being here at cornwall airport newquay So looking out at the airport now with the air traffic control tower to our left, where will the Cosmic Girl, the Virgin Orbit plane, be based and located? Uh, So so probably about a mile and a half in in this direction and going over towards the uh, the China clay tips on the south side of the airfield is where we'll be able to establish the activity and it'll be able to operate there pretty much segregated from other air activities which we have around the airport currently it's the best place it's we we analyze the site and obviously the layout and what we would need to do to accommodate not just the size of the aircraft but also the assembly for the rocket which will actually ultimately be attached to the air to the undercarriage of of the cosmic girl there's a plane going up there in the in the distance i must admit i'm a bit of a i like i like airports so it's quite fun to actually uh, to actually be here so what stage are you at at the moment then with the spaceport you've got nothing physical on site apart from the ad that i saw as soon as i arrived which had spaceport cornwall for the first launch which we're looking at um, potentially as early as next year is the, the existing infrastructure primarily will be able to accommodate without much change. There's some stuff which we need to do around our taxiways from a strengthening and widening, looking at our aerodrome lighting system and how we're actually going to manage the fuel which will actually be going into the rocket itself. So from a physical infrastructure perspective, we're pretty much already set. There is some investment which we'll need to do over, over the next 12 months, but given that we're looking at 
probably relatively low launch frequency in, in the early years of between one and three per annum over the first four to five years of its development. We don't actually need to go and invest into significant infrastructure of new hangars because we're looking to try to do this low cost with our partners. And it's the, the, where the market will then take us is when that demand will, will, will actually come. So we will need some uh, building accommodation, mainly for where the, the Virgin Orbit team will be able to do the preparation and the assembly and then the final fix um, before it actually get, comes out and be, be attached to the aircraft itself. So we're very much in terms of trying to keep the cost down, which will drive, obviously, the economy of scale um, for the customer as well. But ultimately, where we envisage being is hopefully having a, a big hangar, which is home permanently to, to Virgin Orbit. Virgin are, want a network of spaceports so they can move between them to service their client bases. And we see ourselves as we're part of the Global Spaceport Alliance. And, you know, there are going to be other sites that look at, at us and go, wait a minute, they're using an existing airport to do this. We don't have to build from scratch. We don't have to be a spaceport America. We can do this and then enhance what we already have. I think we're probably the first ones to do it and to show that we can do it and we're capable and hopefully that we'll be able to consult with other potential sites around the world and show them and share practices because we see this, you know, just as the future of launch as we see it, using what we have already, not building from scratch and doing things a little bit differently. Melissa Thorpe and Al Titrington. Shahida, that's, it's a very different style of spaceport and, and launch facilities to what they have in Sweden because mm. you have S-Range, which mm. is vertical, Absolutely. isn't it? Yes. S-Range is unique in Europe in, because we are the only facility from where we can launch um, overland. And that's because of its um, isolation. It's in the Arctic Circle, very close to uh, Karuna. So vertical launch, absolutely, which means that we um, are already launching into the stratosphere and just above the International Space Station. And that facility and that capability does not exist within Europe um, presently. So something Melissa said was how we can work together across the world. And that's exactly what we want to do from SSC's perspective. We want to work with the likes of um, Spaceport Cornwall and Shetland's uh, Space Centre and because they are concentrating on the vertical, our sovereign vertical launch capability. We want to bring over our expertise and we want to share our expertise from the only functional uh, launch facility in Europe um, so that we can really make the UK sovereign launch capability the best it can be and we want to be able to work together. Now, there are different qualities to a vertical vertical launch capability compared to a horizontal launch capability. I'm not going to go into the specifics. Both have different um, qualities, but then likewise, they will have um, constraints as well. Hence why within the UK, we're looking at both vertical and uh, horizontal. What's the advantage of, of just fundamentally having it in Europe in the first place? I mean, you know, why do we need these separate launch capabilities? Why do you need to have a spaceport in Cornwall? Why do you need to have a spaceport in Scotland mm. or Sweden? You know, mm. why not just go to Russia or um, the US? So it's an excellent question. So I think it's not, it's not that excellent. <laughs> <laughs> I know the answer to this. Go on. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to style it, it was out. Pretty good. It was <laughs> no, all right. I'm going to be diplomatic, and I'm going to style it out. So I, th- I think we all understand um, why the historic facilities came about because we were living through the Cold War and we didn't want to collaborate we wanted to compete and we wanted to be the best that we could be but of course we don't live in a Cold War era now perhaps a hot war maybe I shouldn't have said that (laughs) Um, but so with regards to the UK launch uh, capability now um, that 
came about because our then science minister verbalised uh, his ambitions um, for the UK to have a launch capability. And that ambition has transformed to what we see today in Cornwall and in Scotland. And of course, we can use the facilities in uh, Russia, in Kazakhstan, in South America, in the US. But we have to bear in mind that the facilities are all different, which means that they don't all perform the same way. We can't launch the same types of satellites into the same t- um, the orbits that we want. So they all bring something to the business. table. It's business, though, as well, isn't it? Because the demand is there in that there are so many people around the UK mm. who want to launch small satellites and at the moment they have to wait for a ride and that wait can be a year two years so why do that when when it's all up and running you've got your launch launch sites here absolutely um, to get a bespoke launch absolutely and um You've actually um, said something very pertinent. The UK leads. <laughs> the UK leads the market with small sats, uh, and we've all heard of um, SSTL. We've heard of Clyde Space, and it's quite phenomenal for a nation so small. Okay, there are sixty-five million of us, but we are really punching above, you know, our weight when it comes to the uh, space industry, and we are leading the market with small sats. And as Sue said, you know, if we can have a sovereign capability, then really. Really, it's a, you know, we have end-to-end services from manufacturing, from procuring manufacturing to delivering and then receiving the services. SSC, what I quite like is that you do balloon launches as well, don't you? It's amazing. And when you see these balloons, it's something quite phenomenal. And are these mostly weather balloons or? These balloons carry experimental payloads, science experiments. So when we launch payloads into space, we can never see them again because they're in space forever. Whereas with balloons, they come back to Earth And so we can um, regain control. We can get our payload back, our experiments back, and we can get the raw data, transfer, um, transform the raw data into meaningful terms. And so we have instant access to, you know, the results of the experiment. And that's what's really unique about stratospheric uh, balloon launches. They are massive. They look awesome. I'd like to see one, actually. You must come up to this range. Oh, yeah. No, I've never been. I think that's definitely... On the list of things to do. Well, as uh, you'll know, one of the great pioneers of the space age has just died. Twice hero of the Soviet yes. Union. Yes. Alexei Leonov was the first person to walk in space. He also took part in the Apollo-Soyuz mission, uniting the two sides of the Cold War in space for the first time. A mission that laid the foundations for today's International Space Station. Well, I met Alexei Leonov when he was in London for the Cosmonauts exhibition in 2015. And before we hear from him, uh, in a translation, by the way, which was slightly odd at the time, because I'm talking to Alexei, who's obviously a bloke, and the translation was from a woman. So, you know, we've got a little bit of a gender neutral thing going on uh, here. But here's an extract, first of all, because it goes really well. It's from our Audible docudrama series. And it's as the cosmonaut prepares to make history. Ready for my close-up, Pasha? Pasha, I'm spinning like a top. Are you alright, Alexei? Alexei! Are you alright? 
Can you respond? I'm okay. I frightened myself by the vehicle line. Like a kite. Tether to a stick. How does it look out there? Well, for me, it was the realization that the Earth is round. You know, we will talk about that it's round. But in fact, when I was 500 kilometers above the Earth, outside the spacecraft, I suddenly thought, hmm, it's round. And the first thought that came into my mind was, the universe is limitless, both time-wise and space-wise. When you are on Earth, you don't think about it, ever. And in fact, you don't see any borders on Earth, and you think, ah, it's a home for mankind, this is what it is. We создали we set up an association of all the participants of space flights. Association of space explorers. And we also published a book, Our Blue Planet, Our Home. Can I just ask how you feel about the state of the space industry within Russia at the moment? Because it's gone from such heights to more a more troubled position. Well, basically, yes, you're right, we've lost a lot. And we've lost a lot because of the perestroikas, because of all the reforms and trying to modernize or not. And then what happened is that there were different, now there are different enterprises manufacturing different bits of the Russian spacecraft. But a spacecraft is only as reliable as a nuts, the nuts and bolts that hold it together. And if one nut is being produced in one enterprise, another one in another facility, nothing happens because there is no cooperation. And they haven't actually trained the new generation of designers, the new generation of people who could manufacture the spacecraft properly, because all that has been lost. We wasted a lot of time. You oversaw crew training as chief cosmonaut in Russia. Considering your experiences, is there anything that you actually can't prepare an astronaut for? Среди первых в отряде космонавтов нас осталось всего лишь четыре человека. I'm uh, one of the four remaining uh, cosmonauts who started training together as a team of twenty. Just four are remaining now. And after Gagarin's death, I became the chief cosmonaut overseeing the entire training. Um, and uh, we really went, we have gone, we had gone through all the different programs, all the different types of spacecraft. And Korolev has always said, had always said, that uh, if you have done 500 different tests, you would be, the 501 emergency would be a piece of cake. Uh, and there is the basic. The ba- there are the basics that 
underlie all the training which should prepare you for different types of emergencies. But if you look at the Americans and ourselves, we really had emergencies at every stage of our space flights. They did, and we did too. Должна быть общая подготовка, высокая техническая подготовка всех. And of course there are problems with technology, so you have to really train everyone technologically. Everybody should be really professional, technically. Первый отряд это летчики-истребители. Три тысячи человек было просмотрено со всех сторон, физически просмотрен интеллект людей, чтобы отобрать только двадцать. So in order to select the 21st cosmonauts, they had to go through 3,000 fighter pilots in terms of their physical preparedness, in terms of their intelligence and their intellect, and in terms of their abilities, of all types of abilities, to select 20 out of 3,000. Finally, do you consider in your heart that you are an artist or a cosmonaut? You know, so basically, yes, they usually divide people into mathematically minded people and people who are much more minded towards arts. Well, I'm a lyrical cosmonaut. I had friends. I'm actually quite well healed in terms of mathematics and physics too, but my heart, my soul was not in, in mathematics or physics. I always had to see the side that my friends couldn't see. Alexei Leonov, who's died aged 85. There's another person we should mention uh, who also died recently, and we haven't uh, mentioned in the podcast, Chris Craft. Mm, I met him as well, yeah. Flight. Yeah, I mean, an awesome man. I've sadly never, never met him. Um, What was he like? He was forbidding, imposing, (laughs) gruff, direct, forthright, and so consequently, from a journalist's point of view, a fantastic interviewee uh it was in houston and i went i was making a radio program uh actually it was it was this was when i first went molly funk actually it was called right Mm. stuff wrong sex it was about the mercury 13 and uh chris craft was one of the men that several of the women including jerry truehill insisted he'd been really rude Mm about them and said they would rather send a monkey into space than women. He denied that when I interviewed him, but he did look slightly shamefaced about it, so uh, I'm not sure of him. But he was rude about other people. Again, that's why I say as a journalist, he was great to interview because he was open and uh, probably if he'd had, had a press person there if you know if he'd still been working for NASA because he was retired at that point they would have immediately grabbed him off and taken him away from me because he uh, also admitted that well actually some of those women probably could have yep. flown and gone into space and would have done better and he was really rude here about Scott Carpenter and said if it was in his uh, I think something along the lines of if it had been him he wouldn't have sent him into space full stop he also called Valentina Tereshkova the first woman into space a basket case so you can see why I have mixed feelings about this man but what a you know still a great guy to have met and his book Flight still remains one of my top five books about space in order to read it is one of the best autobiographies of space I mean you know Chris Graff set up Mission Control Um, actually if you want to um, see a, a recent interview with him in the Armstrong film 
the film about Neil Armstrong that uh, came out recently. We had the interview a few months ago in Space Boffins. Um, he's, he is uh, very funny when he's asked about, was there a possibility of Buzz Aldrin being the first man mm. on the moon? It's very clear that there was never any possibility <laughs> of Buzz Aldrin being the first man if he'd on been the moon. On, if he'd been in charge, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> well, well, it well, he was didn't in charge. Well, that he didn't happen charge, anyway. And that's yeah. why it happened. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's what he says. Um, okay, you can download the full series of our docudrama, by the way, The Space Race, from Audible. Uh, we made it with our partners, B7 Media. Ten parts, almost ten hours of, of audio. And, uh, I mean, I know, we say it ourselves. It's really good. Yeah. I mean, it is really, it's really good. It's, it's really bloody good. good. It's not but really good. stop swearing? I have to beat those out. But, but you know, Buzz, he was the uh, more senior um, astronaut, and I think it was the expectation that the more senior astronaut would land on the moon first, but no one told Buzz that wasn't going to happen. So I think he, you know, to right to the very end, he thought it was going to be me. Yeah, not that he's bitter about it. No, he barely mentions it. No. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Shahida Barak, uh, for from SSC Space UK for joining us and uh, yeah we definitely would like to head to range I think it sounds fantastic we're supported by the UK Space Agency and produced in partnership with the Naked Scientists do get in touch with us on Facebook Twitter or email info at boffinmedia.co.uk uh, next month, an ambitious new mission to intercept a comet. And what's really cool about this mission, they don't even know whether this comet even exists yet. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Thanks for listening. 